0: or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyett. My name is
1: Michael Guyad, publisher of The Lead Lag Reporter. Joining me for the air is Amy Nixon. Amy, for those who have not seen you with Mr. Adam Taggart and heard you on Spaces, I introduce yourself. Who are you? What's your background? What are you doing currently? And why are you so focused on Airbnb?
2: Hi, Michael. It's good to be here. I just want to say, I listened to your latest Wealthian interview that you did. I think it was like a month or two ago. And I thought you did a really great job. I think you are probably one of the more misunderstood people on this Twitter X app. So, yeah, it was great to just kind of get an opportunity to honestly to hear from you as not as a host, but as a guest. So I, yeah, I think, by that. the way,
1: I think, by the way, I surprised Adam by not cursing. Uh, <laughs> just, uh, going back to the persona online, which does work, but obviously, you know, face to face and doing things like that, it's, it's a much more professional demeanor. But anyway, this is your show. So please continue.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, I am based in Dallas, Fort Worth, and I do macro and housing analysis. I've been doing this for about three years now. I've had this Twitter account going for about three years, but it's really taken off in the last year, I would say. And I just recently have appeared on Fox Business a couple of times. So that was something new for me. So yeah, there's just been a lot going on. I'm also a mom. I've got three kids and I do a lot of volunteer work in our community with our PTA. And I am a distance runner, which I know you mentioned the pull ups. <laughs> I just recently completed a pull up challenge, but I'm very into fitness and I qualified for Boston at one point and I'm hoping to do that again soon. So, yeah, that pretty much sums up kind of me and my interests. I think what was one more part of your question about why I'm focused on Airbnb? Was that the other part of the question?
1: Uh, yeah, because I think, I, I, yeah, I was going to make a joke about, yeah, we, you're getting good at the marathon because you're trying to run as far away from Airbnb type properties as possible. But yeah, explain <laughs> kind of the focus on Airbnb here.
2: You know what? It started with, I felt like whenever you have what looks like an asset bubble there's always an underlying investments and greed going on that's are the things that sort of drive that bubble up to that final peak and in every housing cycle where we've had a bubble particularly the last one that we had in 2000 I would say the bubble part phase was like 2004 to 2006 there's always this sort of end stage where you have sort of the common man entering into this investment space with some form of what sounds like a too-good-to-be-true investment. And in that earlier 08 bubble, the too-good-to-be-true investment thesis was you could flip homes, pretty much take out as much leverage as possible because it was a not, like it couldn't lose deal. And the reason they said it was a couldn't lose deal is because prior to the 08 crash, we'd never had home prices drop nationally like the way that they did in 2008. So the way that the investment thesis was pitched to sort of the common investor was, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter how much leverage you're taking on. It doesn't matter how much risk you're taking because housing has always been a, quote, safe investment. Real estate's always been safe. The prices don't go down. Therefore, you can't lose. And that's how things were sort of framed during that time period. And obviously a lot of people learn their lessons from that. And we are now have now moved on to a place where the average person is not getting a crazy arm mortgage and lenders are not lending blindly to just residential families the way that they did in that 2005, 2006 bubble. But that doesn't mean that there's not speculative behavior going on in other aspects of the real estate market. And I think in this particular housing cycle, the speculative behavior is not being seen in residential home loans. It's not being seen in flippers as much, although there is some flipping this time too. It's being seen in sort of, I zeroed in on Airbnb, but I, was, I would actually pull the scope out slightly and say passive income landlordism is kind of what I'm seeing, where I'm seeing the speculative behavior in this cycle. And I actually was just reading an article today in the New Republic that I think like perfectly perfect, perfectly captures what I was trying, the spirit of what I was trying to say about the speculative nature of this. They're talking about how basically in this cycle, we've got in the last three or four years, influencers are casting hyper-aggressive rentierism as financial common sense. And you see on every platform, you see on Twitter, you see it on TikTok, you see it on YouTube videos. People are pitching the idea that you can be a landlord and you can make passive income and you can take out a massive amount of leverage and risk to do this. And it's only going to be a winning bet. And it's sort of based on the premise of for the last probably decade or so that we've been in a low and even lowering interest rate environment, this has worked. Big players who got into the the rental market, the multifamily, the Airbnb space in, you know, the wake of the 08 crash, probably people that entered in 2010 to 2014, those people made an absolute killing. And there are those people that are coming out and saying, hey, look how well we did. You know, then the next level of investors come in and say, wow, look how well they did. You know, this is a can't lose bet i want in too and that eventually trickles down and by the end of the cycle it becomes something where it starts to feel like this is like a financial no-brainer you can't lose and nobody's thinking beyond the macro environment that it's been operating in for the last decade to so the reality of you know what we're facing now which if you saw the 10 year yield today is a completely different future for real estate and for landlords.
1: I like that point about the, you know, it's towards the final stages of a bubble. You see the common man participate. I've, I have I term that the uneducated speculators, right? They start to come into the marketplace. You saw that in 2021 with the crypto craze. You saw that, I think, even around the AI side, and that's maybe still unraveling now. The difference between those types of movements and housing is that this is many years in the making because Airbnb was such a New dynamic, that passive income landlord, landlordism, right, as is, is really accelerated because of technology and companies like Airbnb and, and Verbo in terms of the ease of access to advertise. Now, you had a post that went viral. I saw it. I reposted. it. I got all kinds of play. I think it had like several million uh, views on it showing, I believe it was in Austin, Texas, correct me if I'm wrong. Two, you had two images, right? The the number of homes that were uh, for sale and then the number of uh, properties that were Airbnb'd. And you said, you know, something along the lines of, do you get it now? If you can find that, I'd love to repost that and share it to the space here, but explain sort of the effect of concentration of ownership in different areas like Austin, Texas, like other parts of the country. Because I do think most people really underappreciate how much property has been taken off of the available supply of housing because of that passive income theme.
2: Yeah. So it was Austin, you're correct. And what happened in the last three years in particular, the number of listings in the U.S. of Airbnbs have gone up by 60%. And that doesn't mean that they were necessarily purchased since 2020. Some of those properties could have been purchased in 2015 and somebody just had to be a long-term rental and then they decided to convert it to an Airbnb in 2021 So they listed it on Airbnb. But the point is that since 2020, in terms of like housing stock that's been owned by investors, 60% of that or 60% of what is listed on Airbnb has been added since 2020, at least. I think this was from probably six months ago or so that I got that number. So it may have gone up even higher since then. And basically what people have done is they realized that if they have a property and they've got this nice low interest rate, and they were renting it to a family for maybe $2,500 a month, they thought, oh, if I airbnb this property, maybe I can get $250, $300 a night. And then I only have to book it for half the month, and I will make as much or more money as if I had a long-term tenant. And the potential, if you book fully for the month, to make the most income is there. So I think a lot of people took their property that maybe they would have rented to a family as a home, and decided to list it on Airbnb. And you know they went to Home Goods or whatever and put some little chintzy stuff in there to make it kind of look cute and listed on Airbnb. And I think the idea was, you know, even if they only got half a month occupancy, it would still cash flow and be viable. And that's one piece of it. One piece of it. The other piece of it is during this time period again after 2020, home prices just continued to go up. In fact, they shot up in a lot of regions, like especially Austin in 2020 and 2021, they were going up, you know, maybe 2% a month. So you don't even have to have anybody running your Airbnb. It could be empty and you were still, quote, making money on paper because your home estimator, the comp for your area was going up. So it totally made sense for people to take whatever property they had and try to make it into an Airbnb. So that's why you saw so many new listings hit Airbnb during that time period. And that's why some of these regions have such a heavy concentration of them. I think a lot of people zoned in on what were the pandemic hotspot regions in general. And Austin, I think in particular, I can see how there would have been a need for a temporary increased need for Airbnbs for people who were working in tech and maybe they live in California and they think, I want to move to Austin. So what do they do? Well, it's pretty yucky to come out for two weeks and stay in a hotel versus come out for two or three weeks and stay in a nice house while you kind of scout around and visit the area and maybe meet with some builders and try to figure out where you're going to buy your property if you're going to move to Austin and buy a property. So I think there was a lot of new demand for a home setting sort of short to midterm rental, even if they weren't necessarily taking a vacation. It was almost like, I know in our family, we moved to Dallas right before the pandemic. But what we saw when we were here in Dallas was that a lot of people were coming from all over the country from these other states. And they were looking specifically for a short to midterm rental for like a month that they could stay in while they were bidding on houses or scoping out areas where they wanted to buy a house. So this was an entirely new little pop of demand, I would say for Airbnbs, just the pandemic shift to remote really drove demand for Airbnbs in the Sunbelt. And Florida, Texas, Arizona, I say in particular, were regions where that really went up. And then there were certain areas of California as well. I know Joshua Tree was one that got very saturated very early on. But yeah, like uh, I see you put the tweet up. The The numbers are crazy. The numbers are crazy. And, and I can't imagine that that those are all being Occupied, I think the last occupancy data that I pulled from Rabu said that in Austin, they were running about 40% occupancy right now in their Airbnbs. Now, this is slightly off season because it is fall, but that means a lot of people have an unoccupied Airbnb and they're basically sitting on it. Because even if it's not cash flowing, they're probably on a cushion of equity and they're just comfortable enough to sort of sit on that. And I just tweeted earlier today, my comments on the 10-year works. We've kind of are in this place right now in our cycle where people that own assets are just sort of hanging on to them, waiting and hoping for the Fed to pivot with the interest rate trajectory they're on. And if they can just hang on to their asset, they're hoping that things are going to go back to the way that they were before. But it's looking increasingly like things may not, or at least not soon enough. So... Anybody that's sitting on a property that isn't cash flowing, I think every month that ticks by, they're going to start to have to make that hard calculation in their head. You know, do I want to keep paying increased property taxes? Do I want to keep paying higher insurance premiums? Did a roof break? Do I need to do a repair? How much money are they going to bleed before they take that Airbnb, pull it off Airbnb and either list it as a long-term rental or sell it.
1: I'm glad you said that because I think that's something that's often missed as a variable when people say, well, you know, these people, these landlords that have these second and third properties, okay, so if they're not rented out, they can just keep the asset and they they still have that kind of low lock-in mortgage effect, right? Uh, The problem is, to your point, okay, that may be locked in, but other things, other prices are still increasing. Taxes still increase. To your point, there's random repairs that happen. So I guess the question becomes, is there some average amount of time where if a property is not being rented out, that becomes the breaking point after five months, six months, seven months. And granted, all this stuff is still very new and and dynamic. But do you have a sense of sort of how long that process would take where you might have at the margin more and more kind of forced decisions?
2: You know, I think the generic answer is longer than people would expect or anticipate. Certainly longer than I expected when I originally tweeted about the Airbnb last October. There were several factors that contributed to sort of propping the housing market up longer. The lag effect, I think. The I like to say that administrative policy put a little bit of extra drag on the lag because while we had these hikes come hard and fast, we also had corollary administrative policy being put out that was frankly inflationary. And when you're combining inflationary administrative policy with what's supposed to be disinflationary rate hikes, it sort of created this logjam. jam. And I think in, in terms of how the hikes were typically supposed to play out with the tra- typical lag trajectory, I think the lag ended up having some drag and taking longer than people expected. But that being said, I still think that Probably there's going to be always those fragile people on the edges, people who bought with the most leverage or just penciled in the worst deals. And those people, they're not going to last very long in a weak market. And there were, I mean, I'm already starting to see in several regions of the country, and I posted some of these on Twitter at, at periods along the way over the summer, where you're seeing fully furnished Airbnbs being listed for sale or people are selling all the furniture from their former Airbnb because they're going to do something else with it those distressed sellers are sort of starting to trickle in. It's just that till this point, they've mostly been absorbed. And I think the point where you're going to stop seeing that absorption rate is coming soon. And it's probably going to come hard when we have change in the labor market, which it feels like we're sort of on the precipice of that right now, but we're we're not there yet. And That's just assuming, you know, we sort of follow the trajectory that we've been on. If we have a massive credit event and a a solid recession, then you're going to see a lot of these properties come hit the market really fast. That's going to be a total game changer. But assuming we stay on this sort of, I guess I call it no landing scenario, then I think it's going to just be like a trickle from the edges of the people that were the most over leveraged that sort of doing the calculus in their head, like, okay, I've been bleeding out for X number of months, and I'm not seeing anything. Things are moving in a worse direction than a better direction in my region with home prices, or with inventory or whatever. And so they start to bail. But it's going to depend on which of those two scenarios play out, you know, if we continue this, to hang on in this higher for longer, versus if we do have that credit event or that recession. But I will say that the longer we hang on in the higher for longer, The more variables are going to come in and add stress and pressure. Like mortgage rates are pushing the highest that they've been in this last year and actually the highest they've been in 20 years. So the, the pressure valve is turning up high on that. We've got student loans turning back on. So consumers getting squeezed really hard and the labor market is softening, but it's not weak yet. So I think as all those factors continue to push forward, it's just going to be harder and harder for the housing market, which is. I would say, has been struggling to hang on for the last year. I would not call it a strong housing market. I would say it was a sort of shocking housing market in the sense that people were like, wow, it's doing a lot better than I thought it would. It's kind of like me on my fourth (laughs) pull-up. You know, it it hung in there and it it got, you know, it got through this year pretty okay, but does it have anything left in it for, you know, the next six to 12 months? It's not looking good.
1: Yeah, and also there ends up being, I think, a, a, a feedback loop, right? So you mentioned, you know, they would go out to the home goods and furnish these homes. Okay. Well, now, you know, if, if these properties are not getting rented out, then suddenly there's no need to go to home goods and furnish new properties. That has all kinds of ripple effects on labor market dynamics when it comes to anything housing related, independent of Airbnb. And when you look at, you know, a stock like Home Depot, you look at the home builders more recently. I mean, it looks like maybe the equity side is also starting to discount that. That labor side is going to start to really negatively impact housing. So to your point, I use this line many times. Slowly, then all of a sudden, you know, it, it seems like there is a non-zero probability that the housing inventory could get solved actually really quickly if there's like a sudden mass panic causing and forcing these properties to be sold, at least in certain regions.
2: Yes, I definitely think it's going to be it's going to play out regionally. I think that this particular housing bubble was. A pandemic housing bubble, and it had we had certain regions of the country like where I'm in Dallas, home prices went up a hundred percent in like three years. And other parts of the country, I the Midwest comes to mind. Maybe they only went up like I think like fifteen or twenty percent. It was on the more reasonable or lower end. And I think that it's possible that we could have certain regions like Austin where prices correct thirty percent, pretty high, like things that rival the 08 housing bubble, but there could be other parts of the country where home prices are completely flat. I I would say it's even possible there's some where prices go up. I don't think there's too many where I see that happening, but I think there are some where the affordability matrix is sort of still somewhat realistic. Those areas might continue to hang in there and do okay. But anywhere where the prices have just gotten so far disconnected from reality in terms of the median income of the region and general affordability when you're looking at an 8% mortgage rate, that's going to be vulnerable. And also, I keep coming back to Austin, but I think Austin is like the golden poster child of sort of the pandemic migration shift. And also, Austin currently right now is one of the only markets where inventory is already back to 2019 pre-pandemic levels. And that is with national housing inventory still at record lows. So. When you look at something like that, all that tells you is if we are in a market where prices are barely hanging on with that level of low inventory, it's not going to take a lot. It's not going to take a lot to start to move things and pressure the repricing of these assets in a lot of these markets. And I particularly think that when it comes to homes, obviously, homes are priced at the margins. And... What tends to happen, and we saw it on the way up, is it takes one or two comps in your neighborhood to ding those prices pretty quickly. And
1: but, but, it, by, by the way, it's not an but like I'm glad you said it because this is what drives me crazy about those that say. And I've had plenty of very intelligent, you know, and this is what they do in their career. They focus on housing and forecasting. And they say, "Well, it's not enough to solve inventory." Yeah, but neighborhoods get comped at the margin.
2: Yep, they get comped at the margin. And again. One more point I wanted to circle back to with the regional aspect, too, is you've got to keep an eye on areas that have a lot of land that we've been building on as well. And Austin, again, is my poster child because there are exurbs of Austin that have tons of new construction. And I know Melody Wright just drove out there. She went to one of these sites to look and talk to the builders and ask about how many of these properties are sold, how many of these properties are listed. They're being built. They're vacant. So if you get into any type of distress situation, those are the homes that start getting cut in price and they get cut fast because they need to make that sale before the situation gets worse. This is not a family that's sort of hanging out of their house and this is their equity money and they're going to say, oh, I can't cut the price. You know, if the real estate agent says, well, you need to drop the price 5% to get the sale. A lot of times a family is going to push back because they sort of have this irrational attachment emotionally to their Zillow estimate. And they think this is my net worth and this is what my home is worth. And I can't possibly lower it. And that's a frustrating thing to me is that what happens in these bubble cycles when you have a down cycle, is it's, often, it's almost always the small person, the family, the individuals that get hurt because they're the ones that psychologically struggle to make those drastic cuts up front that frankly need to be made. And experienced investors, oh, they'll make them. Builders, they'll make them because they know what's coming. But an individual person that's maybe selling their first home and trying to to, to sort of tread water in a market that's shifting downward, that's the person that's more prone to make a mistake. And that's the person that, you know, we saw this happen in 2008. They they list their house for, I don't know, $400,000 and they start cutting every month, but they're behind the curve and they stay behind the curve and it worsens and they find themselves a year later selling that house for maybe $300,000. Where, if they had just cut it to 375 that first month, they would have gotten out so much better.
1: Just to reset the room for the remaining 20, 25 minutes here, everybody, please make sure you follow Amy Nixon here on X. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left micro request button. Check your DMs, I'll prompt you. And as always, this will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live. That Zillow anchor, I think, is actually interesting. I hadn't actually thought of that, but psychologically it makes a lot of sense, right? People. When somebody's not pricing real time, you need something. People need an anchor. So they're looking at Zillow and that's sort of their frame of reference for how much their net worth is and how much they should sell something for, what they should buy for. I wonder if that becomes an interesting dynamic as things unwind in the sense that the moment you get more comps, more discounts, now that that anchor, which lowers, right, maybe causes even more psychological fear, right? Because now they can actually see the price. Falling from this, you know, I'd argue somewhat made up estimate.
2: Yes, it's that rush to the exits phenomenon. And because there's been so much speculative investment in the last three years, I think you're going to see that rush to the exit hit even harder. You're not as likely to see that when you've got just families in their single family residential home and that's their one property because they live there and they have a life there. So while, you know, unless they've got like a massive HELOC they're bleeding on, they're probably going to not even know what their Zillow estimate is, nor care if they don't have an intention of moving anytime soon. But when you've got investors who have multiple, you know, some of these people have 10, 20 properties, half of them vacant. That is one of those situations where they're just going to dump and run. I mean, they can list 10 at once. What we're probably going to see is bundles. We're probably going to see people that are going to say, hey, I've got these five rental homes, and they're going to try to sell them in a bundle as a pack to another investor. And basically what that is, I call that, the, you know, the greater fool trying to sell to the greatest fool, kind of, again, that's the end of cycle behavior where you've got these people that are want out. They look at the, their, the deals don't underwrite, the seller knows it, the buyer may not realize it or understand it. And you've got people sort of, I guess in stock terms, we call it, you know, the bag holders are trying to unload their bags. And it's sort of the same phenomenon in real estate as well.
1: Go to some of the audience uh, if you're there. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash lead lag live and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now back to our discussion.
2: I think in terms of illegal immigrants, I don't see you know people who are crossing the border gonna be coming out and buying real estate at these prices, with these <laughs> interest rates. We've got plenty of um, our own US citizens that have pretty solid high paying jobs in a lot of these regions that can't afford homes at these prices. And so I don't really think an illegal immigrant that is not even on the books with official job. And, you know, I'm not sure how in the world they would ever qualify for a mortgage. But in terms of needing a place to live, sure, you could make an argument that would help support rents. But again, I think that's going to be sort of the lower end rental market. It's not going to be You know what we've seen built here in Dallas in the last, I would say, five years is. I hadn't thought about it in that in terms of that. I I think that is possible. We we do actually see that somewhat in Dallas. We see multi generational living where we will have families that come. Usually, it's legal immigrants, but they'll come, and you'll have the parents and their adult children, and so you've got maybe four paid, salaried people combining those incomes to to buy a home and. In that sense, yes, that can help prop up prices in certain markets because anytime you're adding additional incomes to a mortgage application for to qualify, it's going to give you more qualification and it's going to boost your ability to pay, you know, a million dollars for this suburban home. But to the extent, you know, I don't know that's enough to just continue to prop up the entire market. I think it's a factor that's helping for sure, but I don't know that it's going to be enough to keep it going and certainly keep it going against headwinds of a recession and of a softening labor market. Okay, that was kind of a two part question. So I'll I'll circle back yep. to what you said first, which was asking about home prices the next 36 months or so. I struggle with coming up with really any sort of bullish scenario for home prices. I, I think the best case scenario I can come up with is choppy and negative real. And that's, assuming the best in terms of the labor market and no credit event, and that we're able to get inflation magically to this 2% target without having drastic other problems in our economy. I just don't see without lowering rates below, you know, I, I don't see, it doesn't make sense to me when people say, oh, as soon as rates go down, that home prices are gonna go back up because what's gonna make rates go down? I mean, the only thing that's going to make rates go down is a credit event or a recession or a big punch to the labor market. There's We're seeing it now. The 10-year yield is shooting to the moon and we're not back to our inflation target. And until we get back to that inflation target, there is zero catalyst for the Fed to just say, oh, hey, we're just going to start cutting for the heck of it. They may pause for a long period of time. But again, the longer that they're paused and holding, that's just more pressure on the market, and it's more pressure on the housing market in particular in real estate. We're seeing a lot of cracks in the commercial real estate market too. Now that those are, some of those are getting pretty deep and bad. I, you know, to me, I see this all snowballing into a credit event at some point. I would say probably in 2024, and that is when we will have an actual recession and home prices will come down. You know, what percentage are they going to come down? I, I don't have a crystal ball. I cannot. I'm not I don't even know that I want to throw out like a number for like a national drop. I think it would be a multi-year downturn like it just as it it was kind of a multi-year up wind up. I think it would be a multi-year drop as well and I don't know it's never linear and it's never going to look the same across all the different regions. So you may have some parts of the country where it's just bleeding and it's bad and prices drop hard and fast. And you might have other regions where they just sort of trickle downward sort of very slowly over the course of a year or two. So I, that would be my answer in terms of you know what I see happening with home prices in, in the U.S. in the next 36 months. And then the second part of your question was about the overall impact of Airbnbs on the housing market. I believe it's somewhere between two and three percent of housing stock in our country is being used as Airbnbs. And I don't know how accurately that is measured. I think it's probably slightly higher than that. That's just the official quote numbers that we get from the data platforms like AirDNA and VRBO and all of these places that compile the data for that. But there's probably a lot of other ones that are kind of not listed on regular sites or they're sort of off-label use. There's a lot, you know, there's not everything always hits MLS when you're selling houses and not everything is always going to hit the official listing sites when you're renting out your vacation home, you might just go on Facebook and say, hey, I've got this house for the weekend. Do my friends want to rent it? You know, they don't even bother to put it on Airbnb. So the numbers, the official numbers are between two and 3%, but it's probably higher than that. But you have to think about it in terms of just how terribly low our inventory is in this country with homes for sale, residential, single family homes. We're only about one to two million homes short of where we sort of need to be to get back to that what I would call pre-pandemic normal level of housing inventory that we kind of held through 2010 to 2019. And there's like about 2 million Airbnbs in the US. So, you know, if we take half of those and put them back for sale on the real estate market, you know, obviously I realize some of them are vacation bungalows that, you know, maybe a family's not going to want to live in some kind of beach house, but... If we took you know a, a percentage of those and put them back on the market, it would make a massive difference in a market that has such crushed inventory. So I would say it's a small percentage of overall housing, but that a small percentage of overall housing can still have a really outsized impact. That's a great question. Yeah you know, there's a couple of things that I'm looking at, and the first one that I constantly am monitoring is occupancy rates. So, I use Rabu. It's a website that that shows you sort of the occupancy rates and it will chart them through the year. So you can see not only, you know, is occupancy low right now, but, you know, where was occupancy last year at this time to co- you know, sort of account for that seasonal component? And what we're seeing right now is that occupancy is lower across the board. So it's having lower highs and lower lows during the off season. So that is a sign that there is sort of trickle down in overall demand for Airbnbs. That's the first thing that I would say that I'm tracking. The second thing is overall travel demand. You have to look at how the airlines are reporting, look at general vacation travel, domestic travel specifically. We saw this summer that there was a little bit of a drop off in domestic travel, and a lot of that travel demand went overseas because the dollar was so strong. People were preferring to vacation overseas. So that may have been part of what contributed to the lower occupancy that we've seen in the domestic Airbnbs recently. Those are probably the two biggest things that I look for. And then, yeah, in terms of individual owners in distress, I would start looking at tax liens, you know, who's not paying their property taxes. And I would start looking at what we're seeing in Florida, who's bypassing insurance, who's just going to say, I'm not going to take insurance on this property, or I can't afford to pay insurance on this property. Uh, HOA fees could be another one of those sort of carrying costs that, you know, starts to get dropped and people are not able to pay it, they're stopped paying that. So that's a third, I would call it sort of like a bundle that with all the other carrying costs where you start to see that those aren't being paid or late utility bills on properties where or they're shutting off the water, you know, they're not maintaining the property, the, the roof gets damaged, they're not repairing it. Those are all other sort of little tells that the individual property owner is in distress.
1: Again, everybody, please make sure you follow Amy, Nixon, everybody that's up here. There's like so many people, I'm like forgetting who's, who's up here to be with. Go ahead. <laughs>
3: We'll be back after a quick break.
2: Yeah, this is definitely, you know, history rhymes, doesn't repeat. This is not 2008. We do not have the same type of loans being given out just to regular residential homeowners. We have record high home equity for most people that own homes. And we did not have that in the last cycle. So I think there is a lot more protection from foreclosure when you're talking about an individual family who owns a home, they've got a pretty big cushion for prices to drop before they're going to become what's called a distressed seller. But where we're going to see the distress is the people who've bought in the last three to four years, many of them speculative investors who bought with a lot of leverage. The private loan market is shadow banking. There's a lot of these loans. There are, I think a quarter of them are adjustable rate. And there are all kinds of exotic loan structures that are these private loans. First of all, they don't always have low interest rates. Even when mortgage rates were being quoted at three percent, people that were taking out these loans for investment properties were often getting maybe like a five or six percent interest rate, which is still relatively low overall. But again, if you know they're not able to cash for the property or get the asking rent that they want, it's going to be painful for them. So to pay that, that mortgage, I mean, So I think we're looking at this pool of investors who bought with a lot of leverage. They don't yet have an equity cushion or very much of an equity cushion. And those are the people that I think we're going to see be these distressed or foreclosure sales in the next upcoming couple of years. And like I said earlier, they are concentrated in certain regions of the country more so than others, particularly the Sunbelt, because that's where the hot pandemic migration was going. So I think that this is definitely going to be a more pain in specific regions than what we saw in 08, where it was pretty painful across the entire country. I think it's possible, what I mostly envision us having is pockets of the country having pretty harsh corrections and the overall country being slightly negative. Like a national home prices probably would be slightly negative. I have a hard time seeing a repeat of 08 where I think, what was that, like negative 20 to 30% national drop? I have a hard time picturing that in my head now without an unknown massive credit event that's going to cause a lot of other problems beyond, you know, home prices. Like if we have mass unemployment from sort of a shocking fallout, then, you know, that's a whole other scenario that could potentially lead to something like that. But I don't see that as likely. Sure, yeah, the builder's, in my opinion, they played their ace. They've been playing their ace this whole year with the rate buy-downs. They've sort of looked at what the Fed set for interest rates and what the mortgage rate was for the market and they said, "We're going to reject that because we want to keep the prices that we have." So they made their own little market by just saying, "We're going to sell these homes at a 4 to 5% interest rate and we'll buy it down and that way we can keep the prices up in our community and we'll continue to make sales." And it's not just C.R. Horton. All of the builders have been doing this for the entire last year. And I think that they've been doing it under the pretext that this was a stopgap measure. We're going to do this for a certain period of time. And then the Fed's going to go back and lower rates to the way they were before. And things are going to go back to the way that they were before. So we can sort of hang in there and keep our margins functional enough. And you know, this is why we saw homebuilder stocks soared earlier in this year through, I think they started coming back down in July, but they soared to the first half of the year because builders were the only ones making sales. Nobody could afford to buy an existing home on the market with an 8% mortgage rate. So the only homes that were getting sold were new builds because they were getting sold below that market interest rate. So I think that play is runs its course in time. And I think that the Fed coming out and staying at Jackson Hole, you know, higher for longer, we're pausing, we're not cutting, we don't, they pushed all the cuts further out into 2024. That is, To me, that is signaling to the builders that you need to figure out a new game plan because there's only so long that you're going to be able to buy down those rates and and work those margins. And unfortunately, what happens is once the builders do start cutting prices, it's sort of like a snowball effect. And then everything is just going to get worse and more competitive because then all of the other builders are going to be like, well, you know, if X builders giving this incentive and cutting this price, then suddenly they're undercutting one another and they undercut another pretty fast in a market that's starting to to cycle down because, again, they're struggling to to make it work too. They're they're trying to make sales. They've got employees. They've got bills. They've got to pay. And they've got increased expenses as well due to inflation with all of their materials, construction, labor, particularly labor. So I think the builders kind of had their golden moment for the first half of this year. And that going forward, it's going to be more of a struggle. Uh, It's not going to be like it stops all at once. I think it's going to trickle off over time. As the rates stay as high as they are, I think they're going to run out of runway and ability and cushion in the margins for them to be able to keep doing that. And they're going to have to start instead cutting prices down. But when that happens, I don't think it's just going to be like a shock drop at one moment. I think it's going to be certain builders maybe that are struggling more are going to start. And then again, it'll be like that margins type pricing event where smaller builders start cutting first and then the bigger builders start to come in and, and do what they have to do. But yeah, I, a timeline, I can't really give a timeline on it. I just think that it's starting to run its course.
1: Amy, just final word here for the audience, because I started the conversation saying I wanted this to be an uplifting conversation. And I, I don't feel very uplifted, at least not yet. So is there anything positive that we can look to? And then, you know, wrap it up by just you know, pointing to where people can find
2: more of your work. Sure. You know, I don't think there's anything negative about a market cycle being whole and completing itself. I People have this idea in their head that, Recessions are these horrible things, and you know it's not good when people lose their jobs. But the economy and and economic cycles and market cycles are, you know, circular. Like they need to to complete themselves. And a distorted cycle that where things are artificially being propped up or moved around or, or just only seemingly going up for long periods of time, people love that and they get excited about that. But realistically. Everybody knows inside that it can't be that way forever. And they feel that little bit of fear because they recognize that what goes up must come down to a certain extent and that you're going to pay for what you're getting at some point. Like there's no free lunch. There's no magic economy where everything just is growth forever. And there's not downturns of some sort. So I wouldn't necessarily say that when we're out here talking about You know, possibility of a credit event or possibility of a recession or possibility of home prices correcting, you know, X percent or, you know, people that over leverage themselves buying 20, 30, 40 speculative investment Airbnbs or properties, losing, quote, losing those properties. I would argue they never had those properties to begin with. That's just nature sort of healing itself and working out a cycle. And I don't think that we can label that as good or bad. We don't want to see people get hurt. But to this point, the people that have gotten hurt are the savers. The the young people, millennials and Gen Z that have been trying to buy and enter this property market and get on the ladder. And they've been outbid over and over by cash offers, by investors, by big players. Those are the people that till this point have seen pain. So I look at the economic cycle completing itself as a redistribution of pain. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that's just a thing that is just the way the market cycle is its own thing. And I don't necessarily want to label any aspect of it as good or bad. It's just a cycle that's completing itself.
1: And where can people find some more of your thoughts and work outside of X, uh, if at all?
2: I don't have like a channel or anything. I, I'm mostly just on X. I've been on Fox Business now a couple of times. So uh, I think if you Google, you can search some of the old clips that I have. They'll come up on the Fox Business channel. But other than that, I, I mostly just work through Twitter right now. So
1: I, I think we got to get you on Substack at some point. Oh. Just, just, don't, just don't tell Musk, because he, he has a thing against Substack. Again, everybody, <laughs> please make sure you follow. Amy here, great conversation. I appreciate all those uh, that participated, uh, asking questions. And hopefully I will see you all Leader in the week, I've got David Rosenberg, Tavi Costa, and a couple other surprise guests coming up. Thank you, Amy. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Michael.
3: The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.